You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Cynthia Bourgeau. Cynthia is an Episcopal priest, a retreat and conference leader, and the principal teacher and advisor to the Contemplative Society. She passionately promotes the practice of centering prayer and has worked closely with Thomas Keating, Bruno Barnhart, Richard Rohr, as well as many other contemplative teachers and leaders within the Christian tradition, as well as other spiritual paths. She's the author of the book, Love is Stronger Than Death, and the book, The Meaning of Mary Magdalene. With Sounds True, Cynthia has created several audio programs, including a six-part series on encountering the wisdom Jesus, quickening the kingdom of heaven within. And on October 27th, 2012, she'll be speaking with A.H. Almas in an exclusive conversation on conscious love, the power of revelation, and San Rafael, California, where they will explore how certain forms of human relationship can function as conduits to the secrets of being. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Cynthia and I spoke about the concept of the abler soul in which two souls come together to form one that is larger than each individual soul. We also talked about the relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene and how appreciating this relationship as an intimate one changes our view of Jesus as a teacher. And finally, we talked about servanthood and what it might mean for each one of us to grow in servanthood. Here's my conversation with Cynthia Bourgeau. Cynthia, you've written an absolutely gorgeous book called Love is Stronger Than Death, in which you describe very poetically a deep and beautiful relationship that you had with a hermit monk named Rafe. And I'm wondering here at the beginning of our conversation if you can bring our listeners up to speed, so to speak, and describe for them a bit about this relationship that you had with this gentleman named Rafe. Well, uh, (laughs) that's a tall order. I guess I can give you the outside version that I I was... uh, Rafe was a, the hermit monk at St. Benedict's Monastery back. He was there for 20 years or so at the end of his uh, long monastic career. And I, I came to St. Benedict's uh, to study centering prayer with Father Thomas Keating, bumped into Rafe, and very quickly discovered that we had very uh, deep commonalities, a similar interest in some of the some of the classic teachings of the inner work, particularly on conscious love. Um, and we we fell or were called into a deep relationship of of personal you know mutual transformation, uh, which became the Rafe's last human task. We were together for about two and a half years. I I moved out to Colorado to be with him, uh, and he uh, he was mentoring me on this path very actively uh, when he had a heart attack and died. The funny thing is that. He sort of knew that was coming, although neither one of us uh, had any exact forewarning of it. He, he sort of dodged the bullet of going to doctors, uh, but there was this sort of sentiment from the start that the relationship would be le- short-lived in physical time, but he was quite determined to show me how that uh, one of the 
perks, if you want to call it that, of conscious love is that it forms here, it begins here in this life, but continues. And he kept mentoring me to experience him and that love in more uh, subtle and expansive ways um, so that basically after his death it could continue to be a, as it were, a kind of cosmic channel between us uh, and and into the world. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened. He died uh, very suddenly uh, in early December of 1995, and uh, that was well over 15 years ago, approaching 20 years ago, and in some sense we're still at it. Mm-hmm. Tell me in what sense you're still at it. Well, there's a d- direct and, and a feeling of an engaged partnership, uh, not any of the normal sort of reductionisms that you put on it. It's not like necromancy. It's not like having visions. It's not personal trysts. But there's a deep inner sense that the same kind of uh, miracle of we, as Ken Wilber calls it, that was forged during the life continues uh, as an uninterrupted center of both of our consciousness, uh, and creativity pours in through it, certainly from him to me, and I can only assume that it's a, it, that mutuality continues. There's so much here, and I'm going to try to uh, unpack it a bit. So, so first of all, how would you define conscious love? You say that he was mentoring you in conscious love. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, conscious love is, uh, I guess, the obvious but tautological description is it's love that's conscious. Um, it's a love which is not about in the usual sense of love, which is, you know, totally possessive and glued and you and me forever and nobody else, but it's love that is in the service of awakening, or you could say that just the other way around, awakening that's in the service of love. Um, So it's deep, uh, it's intimate, it's passionate, uh, it has all the dimensions of of erotic love, desiring, including desiring, but it tries to cut a wider space in these things. So that is that very, um, is that very identified nature of, of erotic love is turned inside out uh, by conscious surrender and widening of the horizons. Uh, it becomes possible to experience a deeper and finer and more subtle uh, force of love, the the force that Dante referred to when he talked about the love that moves the sun and the stars. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, for for many people who are dedicated lovers, when a partner dies, there's a sense of still being invested or attached to their partner who has now passed on. And, you know, someone from the outside could say, God, that person really needs to move on in their life. What's going on here? How would you distinguish between an attachment and the type of growing conscious love that you're describing? Well, you know, that was the hardest thing in the aftermath of, of Wraith's departure from the planet, because everybody was sort of doing the uh, you know, the basic Buddhism thing, and saying, well, you will hold him back if you cling to him, and you must let him go, and that and that it's important for both of your lives that you move on. And it was only my, my own inner sense, a real strong inner sense, that that wasn't what was going on in this case. Every time I tried to renounce, I just, he bop, bubbled right back up again, like 
it's still there. Um, and I, I eventually came to trust it simply by the seat of my pants at first, but as I, as I looked into the literature and lived the life both over, you know, I discovered that this kind of a phenomenon is known. Uh, leave it to the Mormons, they're probably the only religion that actually gives uh, special acknowledgement to the fact that you can have such a thing as an eternal marriage. Uh, now that doesn't that that doesn't mean that any garden variety union of two people in life is going to go on forever, but there are certain signature qualities of certain relationships that seem to have built right into them a uh, a capacity and actually a a mission a vocation to be interrealmic if you can use that words and to bind together. Um, to bind together uh, persons in a union which is stronger than physical death. And these, these unions do exist. Uh, they're not for personal romance or personal f- fulfillment or even particularly for the completion of some karmic agenda that one or the other partner has left undone. They're to create bridges between the invisible and the invisible uh, for the sake of an increase in 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 hope and faith and trust and creativity on human beings who are so easily uh, tempted to think that everything ends in death. Mm-hmm. So it's it's almost like what you're saying is that there are certain contracts you could say or agreements between people, and it's clear that those agreements will go beyond the physical form. Is that fair to say? You're saying something like that. Yeah, I wouldn't use contractual language because I think if it if it's a contract, uh, it's probably not the real thing. Uh, but there's just a very strong mutual intuition that that's what's happening, uh, and uh, there's a sense that 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 grows in a person, particularly as the path of conscious love is practiced, is that the particular relationship has this configuration and is intended to have that configuration. Uh, it's uh, once again, it's not, it's not a uh, inevitable end of the road for every relationship, including even the best of conscious relationships uh, practiced in this life. Some um, some terms are for this un- this life, uh, but there is this subset of relationships that are deliberately uh, configured to bridge the realms and really come into their own after one partner has uh, departed. Now, I'm just curious why, uh, I'm not sure you exactly bristled at the word contract, but why you didn't think it was the right fit. I'm just curious what that word brought up for you that you don't think is the right fit. Well, it brought up a lot of the kind of politically correct, I speak, you think, I'm being sensitive to you, you being sensitive to me, the the sense that, that modern partners so often have that they're managing their relationship. Uh, and for me, the, that tends to put it in too cerebral and too egoic a mode uh, for the real sublime uh, will that that runs through it to really operate. It slows it down too much. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you introduce this term in your book, Love is Stronger Than Death, the abler soul. And I wonder if you can explain that term. Well, the the term itself comes from the wonderful old metaphysical poet John Donne, uh, who says uh, in one of his wonderful poems, I think it's The Ecstasy, 
uh, when love of one another so interanimates two souls, the abler soul, which then doth flow, defects of loneliness controls. And, you know, granted that interanimates is a pretty big word, uh, but the whole idea is that, uh, is that, that two souls can essentially form, come together to form a, a soul which is larger than, than both of them. And essentially this happens in almost any, uh, true, uh, deep love relationship almost from the get-go that, again, Ken Wilber talks about this in his little wonderful phrase, the miracle of we, that, that one of the things that makes love so extraordinary when we first fall into it is there's the sense that a unit has actually been called into being that is bigger than the sum of the parts and is not exactly, I, uh, you know, even if you split it off, uh, it would still be a genuine third. There's, there's, there's you, there's me, and there's us. And that this us uh, becomes the new creation uh, of love in, in virtually any love relationship. The problem is without a conscious path, path that tends to be a short-lived phenomenon. And as, and as hurt and disappointment uh, enters the course of relationship, the investment in the in the abler soul is withdrawn, and finally it goes back to him against her, or him against him, or her against her. Uh, and uh, you lose that that amazingly expansive sense that that something is called into being that is larger than both and shelters both. And and ideally, when one forms a a marital union. union and when you defer to one another in a relationship, it's not to one another that you're deferring. It's to the abler soul, to the to the vision of wholeness that is brought into being uh, when when people allow their their separate boundaries to become subsumed in a larger wholeness. Mm-hmm. Now, it almost seemed to me when you were talking in the book about. Uh, you and Rafe and your unity, that it wasn't so much a, a you and a me and this miracle of we, but that it all became a miracle of we, in a sense. And, and I'm wondering if maybe I misunderstood you. What do you mean by that? What you I mean, mean is that it became, uh, this oneness became sort of the new way of being for both of you, and that I, I wasn't sure anymore that there was actually the separateness. It, it seemed like you had become yeah. just one being and that there wasn't that. Se- I mean, I hear often people talk in a relationship, there's you, there's me, and then there's this new thing called we. But yeah. my sense was that you guys became one in a certain kind of way that almost erased the individuality. Now, tell me if I'm missing something or misinterpreting. No, I think that's ac- actually exactly right. And that was part of the the, the magic of it. And uh, after Rafe died, basically that oneness was uh, was what was left, and it's what uh, you know I know from my point of view was what everything flowed through and continued to uh, to flow out of in the time since. Uh, presumably, that's the case for him too, because oneness is oneness. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's a pretty big. Presumably, I mean, you, you ask a, a question that I think is an important question. Do the dead grow? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you write in the book, Rafe is more alive now than he was in his body. 
And, you know, th- this is a big question, you know, do the dead grow? It seems like you've come to the to the conclusion, I don't know, maybe that's too strong a word, but that your sense is yes. Yeah, I, I do. I believe in that very strongly. And the only reason it boggles the mind is that in in our human understanding of growth, we see growth as a function of time. You know, it's a progressive act, and to be a progressive act, you have to have time to do it. But when you when you realize that it's the nature of love to grow, um, and that and that so when you say love is stronger than death, you have to be talking about that that the nature of of a love is that it has to it has to continue to grow, it has to expand. And what dimension this growth is is in when time is not a factor is hard for our little binary mind to imagine. But I'm absolutely sure that's so. And actually, it's represented in some of the traditions. It's represented even in a in a kind of uh, of uh, vestigial way in the traditional Catholic doctrine of purgatory, which is the place that that. You know, we usually hear it just more, just sort of morally as a waiting room until people get good enough to get into heaven. But the whole idea is that they would continue to perfect themselves in in the Catholic Church to to lament their sins and to to do penance for wrongdoings committed, but in some sense to grow until the point where they had attained, uh, uh, you know, essentially the requisite karma for <laughs> for admission to to heaven. Uh, and certainly, Gurdjieff worked on that in a big way in his in his wonderful essay, Holy Planet Purgatory, where he his whole idea that of course once you once you reach a critical level of development in uh, this planetary existence, a critical level of consciousness, uh, you not only can but will and must keep on growing, because the nature of the 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 lands beyond is this expansiveness towards the fullness of potentiality. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm imagining someone who's listening and they're thinking, you know, I, I haven't necessarily had this type of connection with uh, a lover who has passed on, but I have had something where I feel a connection and I'm continuing to grow with someone in my family who's died or with an animal that was dear to me. What, what do you think of that? How do you make sense of that? Well, I think that's all quite so. Um, I think there is a particular nature, um, a differentiation that, uh, you know, when the, when the union has been uh, essentially erotic and particularly a consummated erotic relationship, there's a particular chemistry in that kind of a uh, of a configuration uh, that that creates a different nature to the whole thing, uh, um, a greater intensity. Uh, you you travel down the pike, but I think it's absolutely true, and I've I've seen many 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 examples of lives changed uh, by uh, you know. People receiving help. I, I've received help from a grandmother I never knew who uh, died, you know, a decade before I was born. Um, that and people remember presences of of uh, loved children or spouses or, as you say, pets. Uh, that yes, uh, wherever there is the heart leaning and tending towards uh, towards that which it loves, uh, a current is established that. Uh, definitely 
definitely uh, transcends the the permeable veil of uh, physical death. So it's been 17 years after Rafe died, and would you say that you have felt or seen anything that really confirms for you this idea that even though he's dead, he's growing and changing. What's how, what's your quote unquote personal evidence for this? Well, I I find it largely through a uh, a growing expansiveness in uh, in the nature of our relationship. The the center continues to hold, but it it widens and widens and takes on a much more transpersonal uh, dimension. In the in the beginning, I was, you know, when I was still learning how all this worked, there was a uh, there was a a frequency of actual contact, uh, and uh, and there was a lot of the, the nature of it was still, I would say, in in many ways, consolation and reassurance, uh, and uh, there was a, a sense that that Rafe was, uh, you know, hovering close. And there, as I learned to go through the paces of uh, grief and getting adjusted and at the age of not yet 50 to this radical uh, new uh, direction my life was taking. And and as things have been going on, and in this 15, 17 years that have been spent for me, uh, largely... Uh, Teaching and writing and uh, and and doing some hermiting, not as much as I'd like. Uh, there's been just a sense of widening space, and uh, and since I see that the center still holds, and I see what it's doing for me, I can I can only infer that that is uh, mirroring uh, a parallel, you know, and proportionate change in Rafe. Mm-hmm. I think part of what just totally boggles my mind, and I'd love to understand how you understand this, is here somebody dies and your relationship is continuing, it's deepening. But what about the idea of reincarnation? Is this person being reborn? Is some part of them being reborn, but some part of them is still continuing in a different dimension to grow and relate with you? Uh, I just, I guess the whole kind of afterlife world i i don't really get it and i'm curious what you see and feel well it doesn't quite mesh with reincarnation and uh and rafe was very clear when we talked about it when we talked about it uh during the time he was a he was an adventurous roman catholic by his upbringing and although he was very very assiduously studying the uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead in the last years of his life, uh, he was quite personally convinced that uh, that reincarnation was not something he was interested in at all, at least in the way that it's usually understood by Westerners trying to understand incarnate, reincarnation, that he was not in the slightest interested in coming back into another body or another human experience uh, or another personality with some spark of a continuity underneath. Uh, he knew, he, he said with the body, it's already a hindrance. Uh, and he knew uh, that the d- next dimensions uh, 
were not lived in physical form, that physical form is uh, a sort of a one-shot deal, and that, uh, and that uh, there are certain things to be learned and certain things to be gained in this experience, and, uh, uh, and if you do, other things continue. Uh, but he was not personally interested in it, and I and I think I would certainly have known. I kind of, I I kind of while I was uh, in the more superstitious stages, in the newly you know in the newly widowed stage, kept wondering whether you know when little babies came, this one or that one, whether this could be Rafe coming back. But um, there's a very strong sense that no, he's not in a bodily dimension, and uh, firmly will not be, because the the level at which he the level he had already attained to in his bodily life uh really was sending him spinning on beyond the realm of experience that could be contained in a physical body there there are better forms to contain what he was uh at the threshold of mhm and can you give me a sense of what you think living in these other dimensions might be like i mean i'm curious what your sense is well, you know, all I, 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 I don't want to do it in a kind of intellectual level because it's, you know, that's the wrong part to be engaged. I would just say that at a feeling level, there are so many feelings. Rilke described it as for, for beauty is only the beginning of a terror we can just scarcely bear. And the remarkable thing is that <laughs> she deigns not to destroy us. But there are those experiences that we we touch in our lives, and we can only touch the hem of them because they're basically just too intense uh, to uh, stay with long in our human form. That that very deep intimacy, that very deep every which wayness of uh, of great joy that has great sorrow in it, and great sorrow that has great freedom in it. It's to take those great intense emotions and simply up the whole base to so the point that that becomes normal. So I, when, when Gregory of Nyssa said the dead don't die, they live more intensely, I think that's what he's talking about, the stuff that would um, basically melt our nervous systems and the flesh no longer melts it. And in that sense, uh, we become capable of flowing at a great deal more, uh, more vibrant a a level of reality than than we presently have. You know, life is pretty dull and stale for uh, much of what's tromping through, and we simply can't, even the best of us, can't get ourselves up out of the cellar hole of our emotional conundrums and our, our boredom and our repetition. Uh, but So I think there's an intensity, but the thing about this intensity is that it's normal. So it doesn't feel like, oh, wow, I'm having a mystical state. It's just that there it is, and in that intensity, we sim- we simply continue to do the work of love uh, that's always being done in all worlds, in all dimensions, um, that, uh, that the fullness of God may be manifest. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. 
If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, I, I want to go back to this idea of conscious love in a, in a partnership, uh, two human beings in partnership. And if I heard you correctly, what you were saying is that there could be conscious love relationships, two partners who are very dedicated to each other, but they may not be on this journey of the abler soul, having an eternal relationship with each other. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And then what would you say uh, would be the qualities of simply a conscious, loving relationship? And why do you think some people are destined for this other type of eternal love? Well, uh, the why of it is simply um, um, it fits within the, the dictates of the, of the cosmic will. I, and I don't mean by that that it's foreordained or predestined or anything like that, but that, that, that partnerships that are supposed to jump the gap or straddle the realm are so because there's a particular nature of transmission that needs to flow through them and because the two partners are, are you know, in some sense, uh, peculiarly adapted to convey that. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily more spiritual or higher than anybody else. It's just that the intermesh is perfect for the job that needs to be done. Uh, you know, you've got an example of that, a brilliant one, in uh, in Rumi and Shamsi Tabriz, his teacher, that, that Shams was this... this gorgeous, jagged, wild man of a heart that was nothing but the sun that he was named after. Um, and he, he was almost too intense for life. He burned everything in sight. And Rumi was this this brilliant poet and scholar that before he met Shems, he was just on the top of his game as a, as a very smooth and very uh, capable uh, civilized human being. And uh, so Shems just sort of took over his heart and uh, and remade him, hollowed him out, gutted him, and started again. And the union was such that that Rumi's extraordinary talents uh, could contain when he had been when he had been uh, been prepared and initiated and and purified, could contain the fullness of Shems' uh, gift of Shems' intensity. Uh, but contain it not to channel it, but to match it and to bring it into and 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 contain it in Rumi's sacred humanity, and then to allow something to flow out of it that neither one of them could touch by themselves. So I think that's the nature of what becomes the interrealmic relationships. There's a particular there's a particular kind of urgency and compatibility in the in the transmission link that works. Uh, I think the relationships in the relationships that are are conscious and uh, but are not intended for abler soul, what you find is just increasing uh, release. And even in this life, there's uh, more and more of a transpersonal widening space and letting be and and equanimity uh, as the as the. Even in this life, the particular bonding that that 
that holds them together as an able, abler soul begins to let go, and there's a merging into the infinite. Um, that's not the case in an abler soul relationship. That bonding doesn't let go. Uh, so everything else is there, but there's still something connecting at the core. Mm-hmm. Now, the example you gave of Shams and Rumi, uh, you know, maybe they were lovers. I think it's it's unknown, but it, it seems like it fits clearly a, a sort of teacher-student, a very charged and intense, transmission-filled teacher-student relationship. But yet you're describing really the abler soul as primarily being an erotic, uh, partnered yeah, relationship. Yeah. So, so what do you think about that, the teacher-student dynamic versus uh, lovers? Well, I think that the nature of the abler soul bond really grows out of, uh, of, of that erotic bond. So it, it's not strictly a teacher-student relationship, and it tends to be much more mutual than a teacher-student relationship. So I don't know. I wasn't there when Shems and Rumi uh, were doing their thing. I, and I, you know, like many, I, I thrill at Andrew Harvey's rendition of it, which makes some people uh, <laughs> turn pale. Uh, but, you know, you sense in some of the, the power of the eros and the longing that, 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 that Shems' disappearance touches off in Rumi, that this is, this is beyond the nature of the longing of a, of a student for a teacher. And uh, the student-teacher transmissions are in some sense easier and cleaner because uh, teachers show up and they do so, uh, they do so easily because there's less, uh, there's less mutuality and therefore there's sort of more, uh, they're cleaner boundaries. Uh, there's something um, messy in the whole kind of abler soul relationship. There really is a mutuality and a uh, organicness that that transcends tidy distinctions. Mm-hmm. Um, t- tell me a little bit more what you mean by, by it's messy. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that, you know, it's... Uh, what do I mean? I'm not, I want to be very careful here because I'm not in any sense talking about uh, sexual misconduct between teachers and students. If a if a teacher and student relationship is contracted, that's what it needs to be, and uh, the mutuality, uh, you know, and the respect for the boundaries and the sacredness of the teacher-student art form is utterly important. Uh, but many abler soul relationships are basically, and I would say, uh, it, you know, essentially uh, erotic relationships that simply take a teacher-student configuration because one of the two partners is more is older or more experienced in life or is closer to the end of their life. Uh, so what you really have is a as is basically the the base that it's working on is the erotic base, and then the teacher-student is the is the way it would look from the outside world and the way the the teaching expresses itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, the the real difference in the nature is that in the erotic relationship, there is a a, a complete reciprocity and mutuality, and in one sense, the power is equal. Uh, and in a teacher-student relationship, the power is not equal, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and must never allowed to be. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you have this uh, quote that I. Uh, 
picked up from one of your books that I thought was really interesting, which was the relationship between eros and agape. And I think it's part of what we're talking about here. You're talking about how the abler soul relationship is one in which it, you know, eros is such an important part. But you say here, this is the quote, agape is in essence transfigured eros. And I, I wonder what you mean by this. How is eros transfigured into agape? Uh, by kenosis. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> uh, my little Einsteinian formula is uh, uh, eros times kenosis equals agape. So what's, uh, what's kenosis? Well, I'll, let me get to that in a minute. I would say that everything in the, in the creation throbs with eros, and the great mystical poets have said that God didn't create the world out of this overflow of agape, and agape isn't divine love as opposed to human love, which is clinging and, and erotic, but that everything throbs with eros, with desiring, wishing to come to its fullness. And the way it comes to its fullness without betraying or repressing or neutering its nature is through the practice of kenosis, which means to let go, so that it releases the, the stranglehold, which is the nature, you know, which is the natural position of Eros. Uh, that, again, William Blake in his poem, uh, the one who binds to himself a joy, doth the winged life destroy. And the whole idea is that when we dis when we desire something, we want to cling to it for dear life. And as we learn to release that clinging, Eros is transfigured. Now, I don't mean by releasing the clinging, I don't mean releasing the object or releasing the desire uh, or renouncing the object of desiring. All it means is to release the clinging and to stay present to the love which is in some ways even more excruciatingly painful because it's to uh, live with your broken heart. But to give that which you most want to, want to clasp to your, you know, to your chest, to your heart, the space to be, the freedom to come and go. And that's kenosis. And what it, what it does is it, it transforms the nature of eros so that, so that desiring rather than being used to you know, to form a tight little bond between the the desirer and the object of desire just turns inside out and becomes a generative and intensely uh, creative radiant force uh, going out into all of the cosmos. So you, you have a, a Einsteinian mathematical formula, agape equals eros times kenosis, and just yeah. to really make this very real for people. Could you share with us from your own life how you've engaged in kenosis, this self-emptying times eros in order to generate agape? How, how has that actually looked on the ground in your life? Well, I could give one example with Rafe. It was, uh, you know, I was, during our time, I was 20 years younger than him. I was still in my 40s, and he was in his late 60s, and we were at very different stages in life. And I'd, uh, you know, I'd been an Enneagram 4 run, a wa run amok, I think, with, uh, with one relationship after another. And my, so I was sort of desperate on a, uh, emotional level, uh, for, for, uh, a love I could hang on to. And, 
whenever I got in that kind of clingy mode, uh, you know, Rafe would very quickly get uh, get negative and start widening space considerably. Uh, and so there was one day. It was it was shortly before the time was up for me to leave leave the little place at the monastery where I'd been living for uh, for a year. Uh, and I was, you know, I was just a basket case of self pity at that point. I was, you know, uh, it was Mother's Day to make things worse, and uh, I had invited Rafe over for Mother's Day dinner, and he took one look at my my uh, state and. Uh, you know, made a few kind of disparaging remarks and left. And so I, you know, I wept and uh, was just in a mess and thought, oh, come back, I'm going to lose everything. It's, you know, I just pity me. And I started cleaning the, you know, cleaning the oven, the most disgusting of tasks, and and beating myself up by, you know, doing it with my bare hands. Uh, and Suddenly, there was this little ping that went off in my head, and I said, okay, uh, I can just, this is the last week I'm at the monastery, this is the last week I may ever see Rafe, uh, I can either waste it all in self-pity and clinging, or I can live it as a gift of gratitude, as my free gift of gratitude for all I've received, and it doesn't matter whether he sees it or not. And I just straightened myself up and started cleaning the cleaning it off. I, it was just such a astonishingly novel change of direction to realize that you know that that I didn't have to cling. That that love expressed in one direction was clinging, but expressed in another direction was gratitude. And you know I could just feel these waves of freedom uh, flowing out of me. And you know five minutes later he was back. As if he'd sort of either read the signals of my shift in consciousness or or had actually instigated it. You know, he always told me no conscious work is ever wasted and that um, one of the teachings he had for me was to show me how that if if you did the work of that widening space of letting go of clinging, of self-pity, of insistence, that it literally sent waves into the cosmos that would be picked up somewhere or another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I want to circle back for a moment to this idea that only a percentage of our conscious love partnerships, relationships, are really abler soul relationships. And, you know, that makes sense to me intuitively, but I'm curious just to uh, try to make this really grounded do you have a sense of what percentage of partnerships might be able or soul? I mean, fifty percent, two percent. Oh, geez, I. It would be a wild intuition. I'd say, you know, just a, a stab. I'd say somewhere under ten percent. Okay, and I, and I'm asking that because I think that you know, the romantic inside people are going to be like, my relationship is an abler soul relationship. I'm sure of it. The depth of love. And what what would you say to that to make the person who's like, let me just tell the truth here. Actually, it's not. Well, I think the real, the real important thing to realize is that we, we use the word true love uh, to mean something that's really, really emotionally intent. But, you know, like Romeo and Juliet, a true love. But that's not what the term means. True love means love that's true, that that is uh, that is true to a pattern that, that conforms to what its actual nature is like. And uh, so we get off on the wrong 
put to begin with, if you say that abler soul relationships are, you know, are more emotionally intense true love and that they're, they're what happens to the ones that love each other the very, 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 very most, uh, that's not at all so. They're, they're for cosmic service, servanthood, pure and simple. Uh, they're not for, they're not for personal gratitude and they're not a reward. They're not an eternal reward for very great intimacy. Uh, I would say in the normal course of things, if people have have lived together uh, wisely and well in this life, uh, Jesus' injunction that in, in heaven they neither married nor are given in marriage is, is, is not only truthful, but is tremendously liberating because there isn't the need anymore or even the desiring to have special bonds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that, you know, I think that abler soul relationships uh, basically basically last for the time that one uh, one partner is still on the planet and the other ones uh, in another realm, and that when that configuration is no longer pertinent, uh, there there is a mutual receding back into whatever it was, that abler soul, and then what happens to it, I'm not sure. Uh, so I wouldn't say that even the abler soul is permanent and immortal in the, you know, in the cosmos. In a, in a cosmos that we see has many dimensions and is continuing to grow, I see that once the servanthood of the abler soul uh, relationship has, uh, has served its place, uh, then, uh, then the same kind of deep transpersonal melting into a new level uh, is certainly uh, an option. So this would then bring us to what might happen at the time of your death and how your relationship with Rafe might change at, at that point in time. Do you have a... Yeah. And so you're yeah. saying it's kind of an open situation. You don't know. I say it's open ended. I would say that I would I I would expect that I would know <laughs> shortly before I'm on my deathbed, but maybe not. And I, uh, I I certainly don't envision if it's consistent with what the the nature and direction of 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 growth. I certainly don't see that we're going to get ourselves a a condo in heaven. Uh, it it's more like because the 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 partnership melts more and more into the the servanthood that engendered it, and that I think that whatever is is most needed in the cosmos, we would hope that that our lives lived in this sort of way um, would allow the cosmos to place us uh, individually or collectively where uh, the new need is. Now, now, Cynthia, I'm going to ask you a personal question, and it's pretty personal, but does does this mean that over the last 17 years, and you imagine for the rest of your life, that you wouldn't have another earthly relationship partner because of this bond that you have with Rafe? Well, you know, you have to be careful saying what you commit yourself to. I've never said I won't have another partner. What I've, what I've, had, what I've said is that if... Uh, if another partner shows up, uh, you know, so be it. But so far, my my sense is that that uh, that the partnership with Rafe is going perfectly well, and I'm not, uh, you know, there hasn't been any sort of sense of why one would want 
another partnership. It's all it's all full. So I'm not you know, I'm not making any predictions. I I'm just saying that I think I would know from the inside if the situation if the terms were to shift. Mhm. Mhm. Okay. Now, switching gears a little bit, but not really, in your book, The Meaning of Mary Magdalene, Discovering the Woman at the Heart of Christianity, you describe the relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, we could say, as this abler soul relationship. Would you Would you say that's correct? Yeah, I think so. And that this is quite a bold uh, statement for you to make. And I'm curious, just to begin with, what gives you the confidence to claim this? Well, intuition, but uh, partly looking very closely at the nature of their relationship, at the nature of uh, what's explicitly uh, you know, stated in some of the so-called Gnostic Gospels and what's there right between the lines uh, in, the, in the canonical Gospels, but also to watch what what flowed out of it that uh that after Jesus left the planet uh Mary Magdalene uh, continued to witness uh, in a very very powerful and life changing way to the reality of love to the reality of the creativity of their channel uh, and she continues you know in her own exercise even after she's left the power um She's still such a a force over the centuries, in, in particularly in Western Europe, which I think is her domain, uh, for for creativity, for courtesy, for 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 cultural and uh, and visionary healing. That I see her as uh, you know essentially forming a very unique uh, kind of a bridge. Uh, with Jesus, her her beloved, uh, that continues to uh, to shower its fruits upon this world. And why do you think that this idea, this possibility that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were quote unquote soulmates, to use the the traditional word, I think, for the abler soul idea, why, why is this so hard for people to accept? Well, I think that the the background to it is that we've gotten we've gotten this idea that has been well kind of uh patterned into us over um you know over more than a millennia well more than a millennia of Christianity being basically a celibate game with uh with all the theology being put together by celibates talking to other celibates and out of that kind of a condition we've gotten the idea that Jesus is uh Unique status as the the only son of God uh, is absolutely contingent on his uh, on his celibacy, uh, and so whenever you whenever you say anything that makes it look like he might have had a partner, it immediately seems like a uh, an assault on the divinity of Jesus. You know, I've tried that many times with people and says, you know, what does it make you feel like uh, if, you know, the thought of Jesus having a partner? And without any kind of question, people will say things like, well, if if Jesus had had sexual relationships with a woman, he couldn't have been pure. Uh, or if he loved one in particular, he couldn't love us all 
impartially. So there's the sense that that any kind of partnering uh, would disqualify him as the unique son of God. Uh, And this is all a very, very complicated castle of assumptions that are grounded on, uh, you know, very, very shifty sand. Uh, And... But they've been so deeply reinforced in people over the centuries that it's just an almost Pavlovian response. It it shows you, too, incidentally, where, you know, where so much of the the abuse and misconduct and miserably debased uh, vision of human intimacy enters the church when when we'll say things like, if, if Jesus had been intimate with a woman, he couldn't be pure. What does that say about our understanding of our own relationships as a path of uh, transformation. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like if Jesus did have this sexual relationship with Mary Magdalene, that he then becomes much closer to us as sexual people, that, it, that there's like a, a gap that is bridged in a very profound way. Yeah, and we have to be really, really careful with words here because uh, the two words, intimate and sexual, are close, but they're not synonymous. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not committing myself uh, in any way to what, whether or not they had sexual relations, uh, but uh, I, I certainly am committing to myself to the fact that they were intimate. Uh, the inner tradition sort of split on that very important point, uh, incidentally, that, that about half the traditions um, say that... Uh, say that for the that conscious eros to be transformed into agape, uh, sexual abstinence is necessary. And the other half say that, no, it, it's through the, the consummation of that that the, the actual union on one level of the, you know, the, the, the seed and the, and the, the, the intermingling of the, sex, the seminal fluids uh, is carrying a different kind of union on another level. So you'll find esoteric teaching on both sides of that coin, and uh, it would be uh, imprudent to commit myself to one side or another. So I would say only that, yes, I, I see them as intimate partners following whichever, uh, whichever course with their sexual relationships was for them most cons- consistent um, with the path of wholeness and servanthood uh, that they embarked upon. Okay, well, that's a very important clarification. Thank you. I'll ask the the question that I'm really trying to get at in a different way, which is, if Jesus and Mary Magdalene were intimate partners, how does that change our view of Jesus as a a teacher and guide for people? Well, I think it it changes it a lot and, and in better ways. To begin with, it brings us right down into the marrow of our own transformation, our own conscious transformation. Um, because if Jesus did what he did in relationship, it, it, it adds a tremendous dignity to our own relationship. And um, some of the work I've done in my Wisdom Jesus book and other places says when you really understand the essence of the method that Jesus was teaching, it certainly can be done equally in, you know, in celibate and in also conjugal versions, uh, and certainly in intimate and non-conjugal versions, because it's not driven by celibacy, it's driven by kenosis or letting go. So it brings it down that way to, to earth. I think in another way, 
that so much of people's theological approach to Jesus has been based on the whole idea that he did what he did because he was so unlike us. He's the only person who has both a fully divine and fully human nature. And over the centuries, the, the Church has has built up the difference between him and normal human beings uh, to a huge degree. You know, at one point it says, like us in every way, except that he did not sin. Well, that means basically unlike us in every way. And uh, And when you consider sinning was considered to be to have sexual relationships you know it it just goes round and round and round and that that uh, the the church has tended out of its great love and devotion to Jesus to set him on so high a pedestal that that most folks feel that you know he couldn't possibly be a model for their life or 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 made of the same stuff that we're made of even though that's exactly what he he himself said and called us to. Now, Cynthia, as we uh, as we come to an end of, to our conversation, what I really want to focus on is this word that you've used a couple times, which is servanthood. And I, I think that's one of the things that so impresses me about you, quite honestly, and also when you describe your uh, abler soul relationship with Rafe, and I can feel into it that quality of servanthood that the two of you have formed together. And what I'd uh, love is to know, how do we help our listeners grow in servanthood? Well, uh, I, I love the, the simple, not easy quote from uh, Gerald May, that wonderful founder of Shalem Institute. Uh, he said uh, in one in his book, Will and Spirit, as attachment ceases to be our motivation, our actions become reflections of compassion absolute. Uh, and what that basically means is the rubber hits the road as we start practicing uh, loosing our attachments. Um, and this can start very, very simply with uh, just working in Centering Prayer, the practice of meditation I practice, where when you realize you're engaged in thinking, you let go of the thoughts. And little by little, you program in that default relationship of recognize when you're clinging to something uh, and letting go, lightening up on the uh, the the clinging, the insistence, the, uh, the identification, the... Uh, and as you begin to pattern that in, there's there's confirmation neurologically, not just theologically, that it really begins to change how we look at the world, and uh, we see more and more from oneness, and compassion flows out of that. And, you know, that's what servanthood is. Uh, it's just looking at the world more and more grounded in the stance of, of compassion, and if that's the if that's the stance, uh, then uh, then servanthood will will follow. Uh, it's very curious that of all the titles that uh, people put on Jesus, the one he most seemed to like himself was Son of Man, uh, which is a kind of funny and mysterious thing that's not really understood in the in the Western traditions. But it seems functionally to be the equivalent of what the Buddhists call the Bodhisattva, uh, the one who, though enlightened himself or herself, chooses to stay behind in, in this earthly realm 
to relieve the suffering of all human beings. And I think that servanthood, I, I think that's, that concept was just dawning on the horizon of human consciousness at the time that, that Jesus was living. And that he certainly saw himself in a role of servanthood. He taught a passion of the letting go, or he taught a path of the letting go compassion that begins to bring the brain and heart around to a point where compassion flows. And out of that, then, uh, our life becomes servanthood. Uh, because it's not all about me, it's all about helping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, coming up in just uh, days now, you and A.H. Almas, uh, Hamid Ali, who writes under the name A.H. Almas, the founder of the Diamond Approach, will be in dialogue talking about conscious love on October 27th. And the subtitle for the day that you'll be spending together talking about conscious love is The Power of Revelation. Can, can you tell me how that subtitle fits? The Power of Revelation. I would say that the, my experience of the, the nature of the walk with Ray for these past 17 years has been continuous revelation. Uh, that is to say, I don't, I don't mean visions or anything uh, dramatic, but in, a cre- in that creative field uh, that, that is created when, when human beings really commit themselves to a path of, of conscious love, you really, your heart lives in what the inner tradition calls imaginal reality, which means in the sphere of the visionary, in the sphere of the eternal timeless coming into form. And so you're kind of in and through that relationship um, on the breaking edge of the wave in terms of simply uh, what's coming into being next in the planet. So uh, it's been continuous. You know, there are no books, there are no... Uh, it's all new. It's all fresh. It's 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 learned as the heart leans towards its love, uh, which looks from the outer world like leaning toward the future, but is really leaning into the ultimate. Wonderful. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. It's a dialogue that will be taking place on October 27th. Cynthia Bourgeau and A. H. Almas together for the first time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm so excited about that. I've been wanting to uh, actually sit in a room with him for 20 years. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to keep up with the two of you, I have to say. Uh, I'll be hosting (laughs) the dialogue, and I feel a little bit, even here as we prepare, like the runt of the litter kind of padding along with my uh, little feet. But I will be listening with uh, open ears and open heart, and I know people are so excited for this event. So that's October 27th, Conscious Love, The Power of Revelation. And Cynthia, thank you so much for being with us here on Insights at the Edge. Okay. Well, I just can't wait to see you in San Francisco. Wonderful. Cynthia Bourgeau has created with Sounds True an audio learning series called Encountering the Wisdom Jesus, Quickening the Kingdom of Heaven Within, and also an audio learning program called Singing the Psalms, how to chant in the Christian contemplative tradition. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.